This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. In my view, one of the many things that is intriguing about New York City is the fact that even though some days it feels like about the place that is furthest from nature in the world, in many ways, living in the concrete jungle is a very, as they say, green thing to do, even if you can't have that garden you've been wanting. Today on the show, we're talking about greening New York City, about green architecture, temporary parks, and about one activity that puts that New York hustle into city parks. My guest in the studio today is Colin Cathcart. Cathcart's an associate professor of architecture at Fordham and the associate director of environmental studies. He's also one of the founders of the architectural firm Kish and Cathcart. You might have seen their work on Coney Island. They're the ones who designed the new solar terminal at Stillwell Avenue. A little later on the show, we'll learn about one effort to reclaim some of New York's public parking spaces for parks. And just so the city's concrete parks don't feel neglected, we'll hear from a chess hustler in Washington Square Park. But first, I spoke to Colin Cathcart earlier this week here at our studio. We talked about his work, about why he does what he does, and about why he thinks everyone should be able to afford green architecture, and why they soon will be able to. Colin Cathcart, welcome. Pleased to be here. Obviously, as an architect, you see architecture as being one of the fundamental ways that people can live more sustainably. Tell me what your philosophy is about green architecture and green planning. Well, the philosophy is, if if we're stepping back now, uh, is that we have been building uh, over the last 100, 200 years in a manner that assumes exploitation of resources that we are discovering are are probably finite and that our relationship to to nature and to the world in general presupposes that exploitive and uh, consumptive relationship to nature now i think in in architecture we're finding that if we have a more cooperative relationship to nature, if we have a more custodial relationship to the world, and we incorporate that attitude into our design, that the architecture that comes out is much more enjoyable to occupy. It's more in tune to daily and seasonal cycles, and therefore more satisfying on a philosophical level, but also cheaper to run more responsible as an economic model than uh, the kind of architecture that we've been building over the last 100, 200 years. Now, you've been working on this sort of thing since you started being an architect. That was some while ago. Tell me what things have been like since you began. My partner and I both started architecture school when Jimmy Carter was uh, was president and and after that, of course, a tremendous uh, inattention to these issues. And now there's, a, there's been a refocusing on these issues. And there's, but there's a, a great difference between the emphases in, in those two environmental eras, if, if, if you will. During the, the Carter era, there was a tremendous amount of enthusiasm for solar and, and other uh, sort of whole earth catalog generated uh, items. And my partner and I were very dissatisfied with some of the outcomes. Solar was something you added to your roof, and it was extremely ugly. Uh, and it, people seemed to be fine with that. Conservation was something 
where you denied yourself uh, the essential pleasures of life somehow and, and felt better for it. But uh, there was this, this sense that, you know, you have to turn down the thermostat to the point where you are no longer comfortable except by wearing sweaters and lots of layers, even indoors. I think that now our feeling is that nature is actually incredibly generous and uh, the world is a very fertile place and there are a lot of resources out over there that if we're out there that if we're careful uh, in using and reusing and renewing our lifestyles can be luxurious uh, in fact uh, and that this uh, sense of conservation is really simply one of attuning our lifestyle to the areas where we can take advantage of nature's bounty and we can uh, use sunlight in all of its pleasures. You know, the sun falling on skin is, is just a is just a wonderful feeling. And sunlight falling on photovoltaics is, it's, you know, there's a thousand watts per, per square meter out there just waiting to be harvested. So... For those of us who live in New York City, our situation with uh, with regard to sustainable living is a little bit different in terms of, say, carbon emissions than it is for people who live in other places that are less packed. Tell me why that is. Well, uh, uh, New York City is, is uh, admirably positioned to take advantage of this philosophy, basically, because if you are out in the middle of nature... You're living the the lifestyle of the sort of back to the land uh, rejection of corporate uh, rapacity, and uh, and you're you're out there in the countryside uh, living living your life. You're actually living a, a a lifestyle that has a tremendous environmental impact. Uh, you may be hopping into your car uh, eight or ten times a day, sometimes only just to pick up a cup of coffee. And driving hundreds and hundreds of miles a week, if you total it all up, that's a big impact. Your house will be out in the landscape where every, uh, you know, your roof and every side of your house is exposed to uh, the outdoors and, and losing a tremendous amount of energy. Inside the city, we can have so so many efficiencies by using transit I, I can travel for an hour on the New York City transit system, and I've, I've passed by thousands of stores and and uh, millions and millions of dollars of buying power and millions of jobs. Uh, the the efficiencies are tremendous, and I'm and I'm traveling at roughly the efficiency of about I, I think it's uh, been calculated above 500 passenger miles per gallon. My apartment is is sheltered on four sides by my neighbors above, below, and to either side, uh, and they're heating their units too. So I'm not really losing an awful lot of energy, and, and the central mechanical systems are far, far more efficient than anything you could install in a single-family house. To boot, there's there's the fact that to build your house out in the suburbs, you've robbed many species of a natural habitat, and uh, here in New York City, uh, that habitat was lost, you know, hundreds of years ago, so I don't feel quite so guilty taking over greenfield areas for development as something entirely uh, something entirely different. So if New Yorkers or if people who live in the city live more 
uh, sustainably. Why does that actually matter? Why does it matter to have a smaller carbon footprint, say? In New York, you can have the the opportunities to have a, a lower carbon footprint are everywhere in evidence, and and uh, it's it's easier to do it. But to have a lower carbon footprint, the objective is in order to lower the emission of greenhouse gases that are slowly but surely, and perhaps quickly but surely, changing our climate and uh, threatening the rise of sea levels and the threatening species loss and geographic disruption, higher frequency and higher intensity of storms. Uh, the, the dangers of, of climate change are quite scary, and our ability to mitigate that in, in cities is something we really have to be exploring pretty carefully. I read that um, 80% of New York City's carbon emissions come from the buildings. How does that break down? The the carbon emissions from buildings uh, in New York City are a higher proportion of of carbon emissions per capita simply because we don't drive as much. We don't have as much uh, heavy industry uh, or as much uh, shipping as other localities would. So what remains uh, in a very efficient place, really, are the emissions from buildings. That's from heating and cooling, uh, really primarily, uh, from uh, skin losses, from lack of insulation, from leaky windows. That's roughly what uh, what the carbon emissions are coming from in building stock. And how does what you do help? Well, uh, number one, a, a, a building that is uh, deserving of renewable energy sources has to be an energy-conserving building. So it has to be highly insulated, has to have a very highly efficient mechanical system for heating and cooling, has to have uh, energy-saving light fixtures, and uh, should be daylit, ideally. Once you've done that, to integrate photovoltaics into the skin of... uh, of buildings in uh, the city is something that's actually becoming quite cost-effective. In the next 10 years, you're going to see more and more buildings doing exactly that. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking today on the show about greening New York. My guest in the studio is architect Colin Cathcart. In a few minutes, we'll look at Parking Day, an effort to raise awareness of the need for urban green space by creating temporary parks, grass and all, in parking spaces. And we'll take a look at what some New Yorkers are doing in the city's already existing parks. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Colin Cathcart. You hear the phrase sort of green architecture a lot, and it sounds like a little bit of a catchphrase, but what does it mean? Uh, green architecture <laughs> is a general is a general phrase uh, relating to a whole series of design strategies which will allow buildings to first of all conserve energy, contribute less uh, greenhouse gases to to the atmosphere, conserve materials, use re- materials that are uh, recyclable or re- uh, rapidly renewable. Also, position buildings in the landscape or or in the cityscape that will lower the necessity for greenhouse gas emitting transportation systems, i.e. buildings should be located closer to mass transit and uh, bus routes uh, and also accommodate uh, bicycle and uh, pedestrian trips. 
that uh, buildings also in their interior environments should be open to views of nature and and the out or at least the outdoors and that the indoor environmental quality is is beneficial to human health that people use the stairs more that uh, are encouraged to use the stairs more that uh, the indoor air quality is good and healthy and uh, in a green building the, the indoor air quality may be better than uh, the air quality outside what about affordability? It seems like most of the sort of green developments that I see are luxury buildings. Yes, and that's on the one hand is a crying shame, and on the other hand it's uh, the way life is. Uh, very often the early adopters of new technologies are uh, the wealthy and the curious, and to the extent that we can cater to that market and bring new products and new design strategies to that market will lower the the price for the for those those new technologies to others will allow economies of scale to to make these new practices adoptable industry wide but very often green architecture is not expensive in fact green architecture will save you money if you have a, a highly insulated uh, building skin and you orient the building properly to soak up the sun's rays in the wintertime, but keep the building from overheating through direct sun in the in the summertime, you can lower the cost of your central air conditioning and heating plant. You can uh, save money on some of the most expensive things that go into buildings. So often we find that the adoption of uh, green building strategies to a large extent is good is good common sense and, and can lower the first cost of, of buildings to some extent. And therefore, we're actually finding that uh, supportive housing, particularly in New York City, green architecture is the strategy to, to work with because not only do you get a better building out of it, it reorients your values. So you're putting money into uh, good, high-quality building systems, not so much into the way the building looks necessary and high-cost high finishes and fixtures. Uh, but good, solid things that will save you money down the line and uh, lower the utility bills, therefore, for people who most need those those utility bills to be low. Are the buildings in, say, in my neighborhood in the Upper East Side that are new green buildings, are they actually green? Uh, <laughs> I know you can't answer that for every individual <laughs> yes, building. I, but <laughs> I, there is uh, a tendency towards greenwash, in uh, marketing, and uh, to the extent that you can, uh, consumers of uh, uh, you know of architecture should look very very carefully, uh, so that they're not just buying a bamboo floor because it's a new and cool building finish and looks nice and has a has a nice uh, nice sounding wrap, but. Uh, they should, you know, consumers of architect, you know, people who are out there buying a new apartment or uh, commissioning a new building uh, should be looking behind the walls, behind the finishes uh, to the mechanical systems, uh, renewable energy systems, plumbing systems, uh, making sure that it's a good quality building. And then looking at the ratings, uh, you know, look at those yellow tags on your refrigerator. Uh, you know, look carefully for the EER ratings of mechanical equipment. 
look very carefully to how much it's going to cost to actually operate what it is uh, you're buying. And uh, also there's a, there's a new rating system out there just developed in the last 10, 20 years called LEED that allows you to actually objectively rate just how green uh, your building is. A very simple rating, whether it's certified, silver, gold, or platinum. And that's a, a fairly objective standard as to just how green uh, a building is. So don't necessarily buy the PR. Uh, look under the hood and see uh, how the building is actually working. Now, your firm does design residences, but you also design some pretty large-scale projects, including the much-publicized Stillwell Avenue subway station in Coney Island, which provides a lot of its own heat and energy through solar panels. Tell me about that. Well, it's a it's a it's a grand new uh, subway terminal building on Coney Island, and it's a it's a marvelous glass and steel uh, train shed. It's hard to tell actually from just arriving on the subway that that you're in a, a green building, but if you look up and you look at the uh, the glass above the steel sheltering the trains, you'll see little curly wires coming out of the uh, the edges of the uh, of the glass panes and those are uh, actually electrical conductors that are taking uh, electricity generated by the photovoltaic glass on that train shed and and uh, conducting it to several inverters and it's providing enough electricity from sunlight to power the equivalent of about 40 houses so it's a it's a pretty serious uh, renewable energy installation. It's still, I think, the largest in uh, in the Northeast. What other projects are you working on right now that you're very excited about? You you asked earlier about uh, um, social housing. We're, we're doing a, a very exciting project for Common Ground Community on Houston Street. It's a supportive housing project and uh, housing for the homeless. It, it will be... Uh, lead silver, we think we might get lead gold. The most exciting system is actually one you you hardly even see. They, they're very sensitive, of course, for homeless housing about security. And so everybody has a key card. That key card actually is not only for security, though. It's It actually turns on and off the electrical and, and heating and cooling systems in your apartment so that when you leave, you swipe out and if you forgot to turn off the lights, the lights will be turned off for you. If you forgot to turn off your air conditioner, the air conditioner gets turned down as well. So it's a very good way of managing the electrical systems in in the building. Environmentally, the the most exciting project that we're working on, and we've just gotten the go-ahead to uh, to take it into uh, contract documents, is a an environmental center on the East River at 23rd Street. It's called Solar 2. And it will be, I think, the first urban net-zero energy building in the Northeast. It will create all the energy that it needs on a yearly basis. So it will be net-zero energy, carbon neutral, likely lead platinum. Uh, it's a little environmental awareness and, and education center run by a very aware environmental organization. And uh, it should be a very exciting little project. Sounds great. Now, we are going to be talking about a parking day in a few minutes on the show. And you were the, the uh, I guess, the leader, the boss of the Fordham, day, <laughs> the Fordham Parking Day. Boss. boss. <laughs> <laughs> the coordinator 
Um, tell me, tell me about that just a little bit. That was just a couple weeks ago. Uh, it was actually a boss coordinator. I'm not sure it was. It was conducting a, a lesson in controlled chaos. I think the uh, the uh, the architecture program teamed up with the theater program for Fordham's uh, parking spot park, and the the theme that we adopted was uh, Shakespeare in the park. The theater students came and and uh, we we helped to construct a stage at one end uh, of the little uh, park. We rolled out some sod. Uh, the students uh, uh, laid out on the grass and had uh, picnics while the uh, the theater students took turns uh, reciting scenes from Shakespeare. Uh, it was a tremendous amount of fun and and uh, uh, we had a great day. Uh, uh, just enjoying ourselves it turned out to be a pretty sunny and and pleasant day to be outside, and to be in a parking spot that was turned into a park for a day was an extra pleasure. Where was your park? It was across the street from the entrance to the Lincoln Center campus of Fordham uh, on uh, Columbus Columbus Avenue. Well, Colin Cathcart is an associate professor of architecture at Fordham, and he's the associate director of environmental studies. He's also a principal in the architectural firm of Kish and Cathcart. Colin, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarchy. On today's show, a look at the city's German culture. That is ahead at 7.30. But first, energy efficient as we New Yorkers may be, sometimes it's hard not to feel there's something missing, and that something is green space. Two Fridays ago, on September 19th, thousands of people in 80 cities and 15 countries looked to provide some of that grass-under-your-feet feeling and to spark a conversation about how cities and towns use their public space. They spent the day sitting in parking spaces without cars as part of an annual event called Parking Day. I spent some time with the organizers of the Cortelyu Road Temporary Park in Flatbush, and I found out something about what people think about having more parks, even temporary tiny ones, in the city. There is a little park on the corner of busy Cortelyu and Argyle Roads in Flatbush. On what's turned out to be a crisp and sunny Friday afternoon, the little park is packed packed with people like Karen Sherman, a freelance writer and editor who lives nearby. She's sitting cross-legged in the grass, recovering from what looks like a pretty intense bike ride, and she is beaming. Amazing. (laughs) And the sun's out, and it's this beautiful fall day, and it's just, I wish we could do that every day. But she can't do it every day, and not just because Fridays off are few and far between for most of us, but because tomorrow, this park will be gone, and so will hundreds of others. National Parking Day is an event sponsored by the Trust for Public Land to promote and celebrate parks and cities by creating temporary parks and parking spaces. Matt Schaefer is with the Trust for Public Land. He says that even though Parking Day is an international event, it's also one that's really very local. He says that's part of what makes it great. The kinds of parks, the sheer variety of parks, is pretty staggering. I like to think that that sheer variety of different kinds of parks is telling a, a story about all the different ways in which parks are important to making cities great places to live. Schaefer says that cities also vary hugely in how much they participate in Parking Day. In Tucson, Arizona, there were almost 80 temporary parks. Other cities had just a few or just one. Outside the U.S., there were also parks in Amsterdam, Rio, and Lisbon, among other cities. Okay, so I'm just making notes here of what 
still needs to get done. We need In to New York City, there were over 50 parking day parks, and they didn't just happen overnight as much as it might look that way. Five days before parking day, planning for the Cortelia Road Park was feverish at a local coffee house. So how long do we think it's going to take to set up? Good question. Um, Sod needs have, to be transported. Here's, City here's permits need to be confirmed. And in a situation that might be unique to New York City, the parking place has to be staked out at 3 a.m. Really interesting thing about this spot is that it, the parking regulations on Cortelli Road are for uh, street cleaning from midnight until 3 a.m. So if we arrive there at, you know, 301. <laughs> That's Ann Pope. She's the director of Sustainable Flatbush, the organization that put together the temporary park on Cortelyu Road. She says that although Flatbush is one of the greenest neighborhoods in Brooklyn, there aren't a lot of public green places where people can just go and hang out. If you walk around the neighborhood, you'll say, wow, there's so much greenery, there's so many beautiful old trees, there's lawns, there's gardens, there's all kinds of green space. But if it doesn't happen to be attached to a house that you own, you can't really access it. Finger painting. (laughs) So that's what the Cortelia Road spot is, at least for today. A place to hang out for adults and for kids like brother and sister Quinn Israel and Yusuf Francis. Whoa, Yusuf, you're pushing me. Oopsie, sorry. It's okay. They just moved here from Georgia, and Quinn says this park, with its soft grass, is a nice change from New York's mostly concrete playgrounds. Because usually in parks... When you fall, you hurt yourself. But in this park, you don't really hurt yourself when you fall down. You can, you're going to fall down on the grass. There are some concerns about the park, especially about the fact that it is literally right on the street, and there are a lot of cars, buses, and trucks going by. Lisa Drejo's here with her daughter, Ava, and they are staying well away from the latticework barrier between the park and the street. I worry about the proximity to the traffic. That makes me a little nervous. <laughs> One other thing, parking in New York City is competitive. And Matt Schaefer from the Trust for Public Land says that is not just a local issue. I would say that uh, some people don't quite grasp the concept of parking day, and it's perfectly fine. In most cases, it's, you know, why are you taking up our parking space? For a lot of people, though, the biggest problem is that the park is going to be gone tomorrow. That group includes sustainable Flatbush's Keka Marzigal. We heard her finger painting earlier. There was one moment that I can never forget. Like, there was this kid when I was sitting and at our spot last year. A kid came by after school, and I was, I was sitting there with my laptop, and he sat down next to me, and he was with his buddy, and he said, This is so fun. We can come here tomorrow and do our homework. And it was so, like, <laughs> it really was, got me... <laughs> You can learn more about National Parking Day at tpl.org slash parkingday and at rebargroup.org. And you can look at pictures of the Cortelyu Road Park at sustainableflatbush.org. We'll close the show today with a look at how one New Yorker is using one New York park in a really New York-y kind of way. This story comes from producer Michael Rice. Chess in New York is, is, is really a big part of our culture. You go to many of our schools. You have chess programs. Chess has been incorporated into a number of curriculums. My name is Tariq Rahman, and I'm 50 years old, and I've been playing at Washington Square Park for over 20 years. There's so many social skills involved in this game that it's great for New Yorkers. You know, not everybody, you know, has a jump shot, and not everybody sells drugs. You know, many people, you know, play chess. You know, it keeps the adrenaline flowing, keeps them thinking, you know, and it keeps their mind sharp. 
a game will cost you anywhere from five to ten dollars. Sometimes you give them a special rate, three dollars. Sometimes people come from out of town and they want to enjoy themselves and they come out and they sit and they spend. They spend a lot of money. Public chess guys want a game. You want a game? Chess game. Want a game? Okay, no problem. I definitely treat it as a, a business. I, I I've taught marketing and and a few other subjects, and I try to incorporate that, you know. So when I talk to people, I try to, you know, talk to them with, with the utmost respect and at the same time dropping a lot of information on them. And those that really understand and appreciate, they compensate me. Well, I make uh, over $100 is a good day for me. Bad day, it's like, man, $10, $20, that's a rough day. That's it, man. Good game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good game, game I'll be back. The game in New York. You got to hustle to survive in New York. You know? From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which is also on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend. Oh, and by the way, if you were curious about how that whole parking space at 3 a.m. thing turned out for the Cortelli Road Park organizers, I was too. Here's Sustainable Flatbush's Chris Kreuzling telling the story. At 3 o'clock, there was no car in the spot that we wanted. At 3.10, there was. And I was like, ah, we went to all this trouble to get up in the middle of the night to get it. But when we came by this morning, we took a closer look, and we saw that actually, you know, we, because of the uh, the stop line, we encroached just on the very corner of the crosswalk and managed to create a nice space. It's not as much space as we would have liked. We would have liked the full 20 feet that a parking spot would have given us but we got 15 feet out of it which is pretty good and so we spread out a little bit spread out more onto the uh the sidewalk to use the side that so it worked out okay this is wfuv 90.7 and wfuv.org